when we read the Bible, we come to an ancient text as modern people. So there, there's, a, there's a chasm we have to jump across in our imaginations. And you can only learn to do that with practice over time. As you, on the one hand, learn more about the ancient assumptions that the biblical writers uh, had and associations they had with certain images. So you have to get, become more skilled at that and more informed. And on the other hand, you also have to become more skilled at seeing your own assumptions and, and at seeing the vast gulf that is often between those. Uh, so when we think of the beach, we think of, I always think of Corona ads, the beer, this idea of, you know, the, the life free, the carefree life. And you've got your lime there, you've got your Corona and you grab your cell phone to check it and then just decide to throw it in the ocean instead. Uh, it's this idea of paradise. When they thought of the beach, uh, there were darker associations with it. And if, if you think about occasionally in the Bible, there are these monstrous creatures and they often crawl up out of the sea. And that it like I'm thinking of the book of Daniel in Daniel seven or eight. Um, that is in dialogue with an, the ancient idea of of the chaos monsters and, and the sea, which we just touched on lightly last week. Uh, so that all that to say. You can have, you don't assume that what you think about something is what they thought about something. The original communicators, the authors of the Bible. So we've got to, the image I used last time was you've got to take off your modern lenses and then you know, somehow put on uh, the, an ancient way of seeing and thinking. So uh, the, uh, an easy example right in the beginning of Genesis 1 of that very thing is that the, they didn't think of the uncreated state, what happens before Genesis 1, as nothingness. They thought of it as a dark ocean, which is a, a leap. Uh, it, it doesn't, that doesn't feel right to us because our um, imaginary um, view of before time has been so shaped by the findings of science. And you know, the, uh, our, our notions of space and cosmology and yeah, the, the Big Bang Theory and all those things. So we, we can conceive of nothingness as ultimate zero, and then creation sprang into existence. Uh, whether that is an accurate uh, understanding of how things came to be or not, I'm saying that that wasn't what the authors of Genesis pictured. That wasn't the, the cognitive space that they were occupying. Uh, so they were thinking of the sea of chaos into which God comes and brings order. And he, he makes two separations, vertical, uh, vertical and horizontal. And then he, he will eventually cause, as we continue the study and read, reading of Genesis 1, he will cause the, a mountain to spring up out of the sea and he'll plant a garden on top of it. All right, let's jump into Genesis 2. I'll start reading in Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
there's a lot we could say uh, about those densely packed verses, but I just wanted to point out uh, a couple of things as it touches on this, this theme of the, the river of life. So in Genesis 1, you started with this undifferentiated, chaotic, dark ocean, and God began his process of ordering by splitting it. And the first split was the vertical and the horizontal. So you have the waters above and the waters below, which appear in uh, the flood story. They, they make a reappearance. God, to flood the, word, the world, to bring, it, bring the sea of chaos back as a form of judgment, he uh, opens the, the fountains of the deep and the waters below burst up, and he opens windows in the, in the hard surface holding up the waters above, and it rains. Uh, so, but that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Right now, he's he has begun the ordering of the of the of the sea of chaos. And one significant thing about that is, after the dry land appears, the water below will now it it has now, in a sense, been tamed and conquered. And so, in Genesis two, you have the return of the waters below in the form of the ESV calls it mist. I don't think that is a good translation. Uh, I think a better, a better way to imagine it is a spring. So a spring appears in, in, in uh, uh, the Garden of Eden, but it's not quite a garden yet because there's no bush of the field yet in the land. Verse 5 says this. And no, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And there's no rain. So what is that describing? It's describing basically a desert. It's a wasteland. So in the beginning of Genesis 2, this setting for the future garden is, is a wasteland. And then a spring, a spring comes up, and it, becomes, it begins to become a garden. So that spring is evidently no small water flow, because skipping ahead in, into verse 10... Do we want to talk about this yet? Let me see. Let's have a a quick aside. So just press pause on what happens to the spring in Eden as it forms a river. And let's just do a a quick aside about the topography of Eden. Because there's an important thing to note here as we build this, build our idea of the river of life. And the important thing is that the if you think about the clues you have to the geography and the topography of Eden, um, the Bible, the conception the Bible has of it is as a mountain. So I, I was shocked the first time I heard that, and I thought, where, is it, where does it say that? Because I, I think I always just envisioned it as a, a plain, in, more like an oasis. Uh, there's a plain and this very rich jungle moment in, inside a wasteland. But I think there's good reason to think of it as uh, a mountain. So a couple, a couple points here just uh, before we move on. It's founded on the land that rose up out of the sea. So as we, as we talked about last time, looking at Psalm 104, which is a reprisal of creation, the Hebrews, con- they conceived of when God makes the dry land, not as, um, not like what happens after there's a flood in, in our present day, which is the water drains and the land is flat, but it's more like the creation of the 
Hawaiian Isles. So a mountain juts up out of the ocean. So on the top of that mountain, there is God plants a garden. Next clue that Eden is a river, uh, sorry, Eden is a mountain. A river flows from it and splits into other rivers. So this little spring that we have wells up into a river that flows from Eden down into the garden and then down into the other lands. And at each step, there is a, uh, there's a topographical, you're descending because rivers flow down. So the river rises in Eden and flows into the garden and then down into the other lands. Uh, also, the prophets, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 28 and Joel 2, they call Eden a mountain. And then there's also, the last clue is it's uh, Eden, there's a concatenation, which means like a coming together of separate images that um, land, land in the Garden of Eden. So there's the temple, which is on a mountain. There's, it's uh, Mount Zion or Jerusalem, which is a, a mountain. Um, The, the fact that it's a garden, we'll, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but the fact that it's a garden, a garden in the ancient mind was conceived of as a mountain temple. So there's all, all these little threads that come together in this idea that it's a mountain. So let's unpause and see what happens to that little spring that is rising up in, up in the Garden of Eden. So Genesis 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we have the Tigris and the Euphrates, which there are modern rivers that bear those names. And there are two other rivers that don't have modern, don't correspond to a modern river, the Pishon and the Gihon. So this river, look in verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So that's a, that's a clue. You might've caught that I said it, it rises in Eden and then enters the garden. So in the best visual aid I have found for this is an iPhone. All right, here you go. This is my iPhone. You have, this is Eden, and then a smaller subset of Eden is the garden. So there's, top topographically, it would look like this. Like the river rises in Eden and flows into the garden and down into the other lands. We can revisit that in a little bit, but I, that's my best understanding of the, the kind of map this is getting, getting us to imagine. So what is going on with these other lands? Is this verse 10 through 14 that I just read, they seem a bit out of place in the narrative of Genesis 2, because you've got above and below it are about the, the creation of humanity. And then sandwiched in between them, you have this seeming digression about this river and these strange, strange places. What's going on? Uh, I th when I read this my whole life, until a couple of years ago, I, I automatically assumed that this, is, this was an actual map. And well, maybe, maybe the point of this, maybe God put this in the Bible so we can you know, find Eden someday. 
when I was a kid, that's just where my imagination went. Because after all, the Tigris and the Euphrates are real rivers. So perhaps we can use that to triangulate you know, where the Garden of Eden originally was, and we'd find some significance in that. And I, I think I, I'm not, I'm convinced now that that's not the primary way we should be thinking about this geographical digression. I think instead of a geographical map, we should think of it as a meaning map. And it's significant because it's a, it's a meaning map that I, th I think actually unlocks a, a major theme in what the river of life is and what Eden is. There, we could really go down a rabbit hole on this and spend the rest of the hour talking about it. But I'm just going to say some things and take my word for them now. Get on Step Bible after this is done and do some exploring of your own. And if you want to scratch deeper below the surface, bring it up in the Q&A. So what, what makes me think this shouldn't be understood as a geographical map, but as a meaning map. One of the things relates to Genesis 10, which is a, a it's kind of one of the boring bits of the Bible, the ge this genealogy, the table of nations. So after the flood, you have Noah has three sons. And then in Genesis 10, it's, it's a list of their descendants. After Noah and his family get out of the ark, something dark happens with his son, Ham. And Ham is cursed. And if you flip the page to Genesis 10, you'll see that the children of Ham are the, are the founders of the enemy nations, uh, the, Israel's future enemies. Okay? So the children of Ham are the founders of the, they go on to found this, you know, the four evil empires of the Old Testament. You have Egypt, Canaan, Babylon, and Assyria. These four rivers go to those lands. So the names that are found here in this Genesis 2 geographical aside are repeated in Genesis 10, in the descendants of Ham. So what's going on here? Just really quick, I just want to make sure, do you have any questions about that? Because I'm going to spend another 60 seconds on it and move on. So this is this geographical aside. I think, and uh, some scholars that I've read think that this was supposed to be, the, the point of Eden was not to remain static, but to expand. And you can see that a little bit in the, the creation mandate in Genesis 1, when Adam, Adam and Eve are made, and when God makes people in his image, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and subdue and have dominion. So there's this idea that what started in Eden was supposed to have, uh, supposed to have, be a expanding concentric circle of God's peace and flourishing. The, the rule of God in, in creation was supposed to expand from this ordered place that he'd made. And Genesis 2 charts the, the paths of that expansion to these, these places in, in the lower lands, if you're thinking about the topography of Eden, which would then become these, the great human empires. However, Genesis 3 happened. And instead of the flourishing of God, expanding out from Eden, ruin and devastation expand out from Eden. So there's this sense that the, 
what might have been is lost and and twisted so that the the lands that were supposed to become new little kingdoms of god become anti-god kingdoms however let's zoom ahead a bit to isaiah 2 right in the beginning of the book of the prophet isaiah isaiah is writing about um the the end of days he's he's it's a eschatological redemption and isaiah writes this is isaiah 2 2 now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it so let's slow down and just point out a couple things there at the in the last days the mountain of the house of the lord which is an interesting, I was talking about that concatenation of images that comes together and squishes together in under the label Eden. Uh, mountain is one of them. House of the Lord, which anytime you see the house of the Lord in the Bible, it's talking about the temple. Uh, think of Jesus saying, you know, w- when he abandons Mary and Joseph and stays in the temple and they find him. And when he was young, he said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? So the house of the Lord is um, shorthand for the temple. So in the last days, the house of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. So Isaiah is envisioning this. It doesn't mean I think that the literal city of Jerusalem will be raised up and, until it's higher than Mount Everest. That's, that's, that's thinking about the, you know, that's looking at the text with, with your modern lenses on. But it, it is a Genesis 1 reference where we rewind the clock and dip back into the the primordial sources of the biblical imagination. And they are envisioning that God carved a space in the chaos and made a mountain rise out of the, out of the sea of chaos and planted a garden there. So in the last days, translating this Isaiah 2 prophecy in the language of Gen- the Genesis 2 geographical digression, uh, in the last days, Genesis said that What's supposed to happen is the peace at the top of this mountain is supposed to flow into all the other lands and the rest of the earth. But that didn't happen, and chaos flowed down instead. However, after God redeems his creation, those nations, in Isaiah 2, it says, all the other nations will stream to it, uh, to the chief of the mountains. That word stream is the word, the Hebrew word nahar, which is river. So Isaiah is saying those nations will river, they will river back up the mountain to the, to the peak, into the, the house of the Lord. So that, I, I think that also gives us a sign. Uh, it, it helps explain what's going on with this Genesis 2 uh, reference. And the point is, this is the big point of the, the river in Eden. It is the life of God. And the life of God was supposed to flow out into all of his creation. But because the fall happened, it didn't in the way that it was intended to. However, in, in the day that God redeems his creation, it will again. So that's all we're going to do for Genesis 2. And I just want to pause for questions here. Are you tracking with that? We, I won't be introducing anything new for the rest of this conversation. Uh, just like the Bible doesn't really introduce anything new on this theme. It just develops and riffs on this, this Genesis 2 stuff. Andy, there was a question from Lori in the chat um, when you were talking about the rivers and the, the empires. 
And she said, didn't all the rivers get destroyed in the flood? Um, how would you kind of respond to that question? Uh, yeah, I've, I've also heard that, that you can't find the rivers because the world was greatly changed in the flood. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is an interesting speculation. You can correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I, I, I don't recall that, that, that particular dot being connected in, in the text, that the rivers were destroyed after the flood, something like that. It makes sense logically that a flood that flooded that was so intense that mountains were covered would ha- would make some severe topographical changes in the land i would i would instead want to just take that entire packet of ideas and unplug them and just set them aside for a second uh, and i i would i would kind of put that question in the category of we are modern people using modern minds looking back on an ancient text as moderns. But actually what the text wants us to do is take off those, you know, those modern questions, which are come so naturally to us because we've been raised in, in the era of science. And we know things about the water table and um, erosion and, and things like that. And instead let the text inform us um, as to its own meaning which is a bit of a, basically what I said was, well, maybe, maybe yes, but don't worry about that question. Instead, attend to the text and try to fill it with its own meanings. Laura, do you want to come back to me on that? Um, it's, that's beautiful. It, uh, actually, um, if, if I did have a choice of that, I would have said, I love the Bible when somebody teaches me how to understand it in happy ways. So you just really helped me because I thought, well, the Tigris and Euphrates were there after the flood. I just had always thought of that. Even when I teach the children, I always go. So the whole world was, you know, is all, but I'm not good with science and geography anyway. So I just, when you just said that after the flood, those rivers were mentioned i'm going well of course like almost if if they were god's rivers though i can see that he wouldn't have let them be destroyed or he would have just sorry i'm outside but anyway no that was great thank you thank you very much Mm. rob what do you got for us well i really enjoyed you pulling in isaiah 2 about the mountain and, and tracing that word flow or stream up. I was curious what, um, I guess what, what brings Isaiah two back to Genesis? What's the, what's the, where did you make, I guess that connection? Was it just because of the mountain or is there another like reference textually in, in Isaiah two that, that points you back to Genesis two? A good question. Yeah, there's not, uh, there's moments in the Bible where there's an explicit quotation or reference, and you can say, well, yeah, this, uh, um, the Gospels do it all the time. They'll just pull, pull an Isaiah passage and, you know, drop it in the Gospel of Matthew. And so you can say, you're, there's a lot of warrant for saying this is that. Uh, this is not that kind of association. This is more Genesis, especially the beginning of Genesis, was su- such a powerful it exerted such a powerful gravity on the hebrew imagination it shaped their categories uh it shaped their metaphors and their images like like you would stock a stock a lake with fish 
So it stalked their, the biblical imagination so that when you pull things out, it's Genesis shaped. So there, Isaiah is talking about a, a moment when the, the nations will come back to God's mountain. To me, that once you really get the cosmic cosmological cross section that Genesis went into our building, uh, you, it's it's totally it's parallel. It's like a, it's like a Rorschach test. Like one mirrors the other. Uh, so that that's my grounds for making that connection. That might be a stretch. It might feel like a stretch. How does it strike you? Hmm. I, I mean, conceptually, I think it makes it makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, especially as you read it through redemptive history and how this motif follows all the way through Revelation. Um, so yeah, so I'm not really art, you know pushing back against it, but more so just seeing if there's anything I'm missing there too to really help me see that I guess the mountain in in Eden because that's that's still a newer concept for me, and I think that's why I'm trying to I guess get more you know gather more data on, on seeing seeing Eden as a mountain. Yeah, yeah, that's the Eden Mountain Garden is all we're going to be talking about for six weeks. I am convinced that it is just all over the Bible. So keep, keep scratching at that question and keep coming back to it. If you can get the, these Genesis meanings down, you can figure the rest out by yourself because the Bible is, the Bible just takes these one things and just works it in its hands and, and draws out new meanings of it. And sometimes those meanings are, um, reversed. Sometimes they tweak little details. Sometimes there's there's one one little detail in the in the familiar image that gets added or removed or transformed. So new new subsequent authors are looking back on this same primary dense meaning cluster, this Eden Mountain Garden, and they're they're riffing on it and they're adding new layers of meaning that then work back. And Emily and Tim, this is getting at your question, that then those new layers of additional meaning work back into the Genesis 1 stuff. And you see that they were there all the time. Um, let's move on. We're going to, uh, here's a preview of the rest of everything I have to say. Psalm 1, Ezekiel 47. And then we will look quickly at the end of Zechariah, John 7. John 19, Revelation 21, and John 4. We may or may not get to all of those, but we are going to do Psalm 1 next. Psalm 1, we will spend more time on in two weeks. Well, in two sessions, when we talk about the tree of life and the tree of death. The next time is going to be the Eden as a garden. We'll look at the motif of garden. Um, but when we talk about the tree of life, we'll return to Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, let's go there on Step Bible. Let me read, read the beginning. Here's Psalm 1. It is the, the doorway to the Psalms. Scholars talk about Psalm 1 and 2 as the introduction, that the other 148 Psalms are just riffing on and expanding themes found in, in these two Psalms. But it starts with an image of the river of life. So verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. So there's the introduction. Now, now it goes metaphorical, or it, it draws in Genesis Im- imagery, I should say. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. We haven't, we haven't really unpacked this yet. Like I said, we'll, we'll come back to Psalm 1, and um, you will see the, the fingerprints of the tree of life all over this psalm. But I just right now, one of the, one of the um, markers that you're dealing with, the stream or river you're dealing with is the river of life, is that the tree of life is next to it. Uh, you see that in Eden, and you'll see that in a couple of the other passages we're going to look at this week and in the tree of life week. Uh, the thing I wanted to point out here was, isn't it interesting that it's streams of water? So we have a tree that the man who delights in the Torah, which does, which means more than reading your Bible, but in undergoing a lifelong transformation with the ways of God is compared to a tree planted by streams of water. So multiple, not, not a, not a river or not a um, stream, but multiple, multiple channels. Uh, I don't want to steal the thunder from the tree of life week, but that's what's going on here. This is, this is the psalmist bringing up Eden imagery to describe what it looks like when the life of God takes over a person. Everything else I'm going to say about someone, I'm saving for the tree of life week. So let's zoom ahead to Ezekiel 47. Andy, can I add one thing real quick uh, yeah. about Eden and Mountain? Yeah. Um, if you're looking, not that you should be, but if you're looking for a proof text <laughs> of Eden as a mountain, Ezekiel 28 is the place to go uh, because it basically says it all there. Um, in Ezekiel 28, um, it, it, it's saying you know, 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God, talks about precious stones, et cetera, et cetera. And you jump down to verse 14 and it says, I placed, I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. Um, so it's kind of a, there's a direct reference to the mountainous nature of Eden there. Um, so it, if it feels like a stretch to some people, it is something that is mentioned obliquely, um, in the text itself, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Let's talk about Ezekiel 40 through 47. Really, I'm only going to read from Ezekiel 47, but this is the end of a long section in Ezekiel, uh, what some might call a long, boring section, in which the temple dimensions are measured. So Ezekiel meets an angel. Angel has a measuring rod. They go up and down, left and right, the temple mount. And most of it is, it's the kind of thing you're tempted to skim over. Uh, because you get the picture that, okay, this, there are gates and the gates are this tall and, and et cetera, et cetera. And it's all these architectural chapters. But when you read closely, you, you come to discover that there are mysterious things about this temple. And the more those mysterious things add up, um, the more you begin to realize, oh, this, this isn't the earthly temple. This, this is not just, he's not talking about this, the temple Mount made of stones in Jerusalem, 
uh, it's that, but also something more than that. For for the temple, for the temple made of stones that the contemporaries of the text would have been thinking of to fulfill, there's no way that it could fulfill the things that are being said about it. So this, it's a passage about the cosmic temple. And nowhere is that more clear than Ezekiel 47. So he, the angel finishes the tour, brings the prophet. Well, I'll just pick up in 47.1. Then he brought me to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So there's verse 1, 47.1. Let's just pause here and note a few things. Where is the water coming from? This is going to be an audience interactive segment. So fingers close to your space bar. Where's the water coming from? It's coming from the temple, which faced east, which is an interesting little parenthetical note. What else like faced Eden. east? The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden faced east. Who said that? Show yourself. I did. Lori. Hello <laughs> <laughs> again, Lori. Um, yeah. How do you know the Garden of Eden faced east? Well, sorry, I maybe maybe I made a mistake. I just remember, I thought that it did, and I because I remember Cain, he was like, when he was, I don't know, he like he came against it or something like that. I thought it faced east. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted you to uh, help spell it out for us. I think it said it said it because you know when it's almost like why did you even bring that up that it faced east you know like so I, that's why I remember just yeah. that's why I thought I that it, that it did when you just said the temple I'm going I'm like losing my mind here this is amazing I, I can hardly swallow it. like this is so beautiful to think of the river being like that it all goes back to Genesis anyway thank you yeah yeah I think you're right on. The in Genesis three, East appears in in Genesis three. So let's let's go back to the iPhone analogy. You've got Eden and a smaller subset of Eden. On this side is the garden. And then here's the gate of the garden, which is where Adam and Eve are expelled toward the east. Yeah. Yeah. So in it sets up this. um, It begins to layer meaning onto the cardinal directions. So we've got east and west. And what's who who goes east? There's a, a couple famous eastward journeys in the in the Old Testament. It's Bible trivia time here. Abraham. Abraham starts east. Okay. Yeah, he starts in Chaldea, which is Babylon, which is in the east, and God summons him west, back toward the promised land. Okay. His descendants go south and then come down to Egypt and come back set up their own kingdom. And then what happens? More than Lori can, can participate in this discussion. Although Lori, you're welcome to keep chiming in. No, I'm fine. <laughs> I love it. I just love it. Go ahead. They get yeah. sent off to Babylon again, eventually. They're sent off to Babylon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Abraham is called out of the East. Well, first in the, in the West, the, I want to say metaphorical West, but symbolic West in the Bible is, is Eden is God's cosmic mountain. And Adam and Eve are exiled into the East and Abraham 
in Genesis 12. So following on from this Genesis 1 through 11 uh, primeval history, he's, he, it starts in the east and he moves west. And then when the kingdoms, the Israelite kingdom splits, uh, first the top, the northern 10 tribes get taken east by the Assyrian Empire, one of the big baddies in the Genesis 10 table of nations. And then the, uh, the, the last two tribes get taken east later by Babylon. We are going to revisit this when we talk about mountains. Uh, I think the last week of the study, we'll, I'll, I'll retell the story of the Bible as a battle of two mountains, the mountain of Babylon and the mountain of Jerusalem. So just stick a pin in that for now. That was just a, a cardinal direction digression. But the interesting thing to notice here is we should, we should have a, an Eden thing going on and we should have a temple thing going on. And the Bible's teaching us to overlay those on top of each other. And we will look at that in depth next time when we look at gardens in the Bible. So this, this temple vision, water's flowing out toward the east uh, from the doorway to the temple. Let's zoom ahead a little bit to verse 7. What happens to this water when it leaves? Verse 3. Going on eastward with a measuring line. So the prophet and the angel are now following the trail of this river, you know, which is welling up uh, in, in, the, in God's place and going eastward, which again... That should be ringing bells with you right now. Genesis 2, water, water wells up, forms first a trickle, then a river, and out into the eastern lands. So this is, the prophet says, uh, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Then he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Then he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? So the river, the, the trickle, the spring, which rises in the temple, becomes a river as it flows down the mountain. Continuing on, then he led me to the, back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other, which should be ringing, ringing Eden bells for you. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, which is the desert, and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live wherever the river goes. Everything will live wherever the river goes. So Tim and Emily... This is in part the answer to your question. Where's this river of life stuff coming from? Uh, that's not an association that's made in Genesis 2, but it is an association that's made later. So before we leave Ezekiel 47 and jump ahead to Revelation 21, uh, let me just point out one little detail. We have in this river of life that forms from the stream flowing out of the threshold of the temple, the prophet sees on the bank of the river trees on one side and on the other. So again, we have, we have the river of life with trees next to it. 
which as, as we form these like densely in, interconnected images, one, when one, it's like a spider web. When one part of it shakes, the other part of it starts to shake as well. So this, in, in my mind, when I'm reading this, I think, hmm, I wonder if those trees are the tree of life. And I think that is one of the, one of the wonderings that the writer of Revelation was also putting together. So let's skip ahead to the very end of the Bible. You have a picture of the new, the new heavens and the new earth. And the new Jerusalem descends to earth like a bride adorned for her husband. And again, I, I'll remind you, we've now crossed the genre barrier into apocalyptic literature, which has its own rules that you have to learn as you read it. And one of the rules is a kind of stroboscopic, psychedelic image mashup. So it's just like flickering. Like the, Jerusalem is a city, and then it's a bride, and then it's a person, and, and so on and so forth. So you just got to roll with it. And once you learn the rules and learn to read it in, in line with the rules of apocalyptic literature, you can see that it's picking, it's plucking up all these little images and kind of twisting them together. And it, it's, that's where the beauty is. Okay, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life which should be, it's echoing uh, previous angelic tours in the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. When I read this as a younger man i tried to figure out how can the tree of life which is a singular thing be on both sides of the river and i was thinking i was picturing those giant redwoods with a hole cut out that you can drive your car through so maybe maybe that's it the tree is just massive um but i think that's that's like viewing it with the wrong lenses uh this is tapping into the meaning it's drawing a straight line back to the meanings that were developed in Ezekiel 47, where the river of life, which flowed from the throne, which this river also flows from, uh, from the temple, had trees on both sides of it. So both banks had trees. And here you have the river of the water of life. So again, Emily and Tim, this is, this is kind of where the, um, uh, it's very clearly, this is, this is the water of life. This is, this is the thing, it's, it's finally giving the title to the Eden River, uh, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, uh, which is an Eden image, and it's a temple image, and like the, is it Eden or is it the temple? The answer is yes, and there's another one on top of it that it's laying down, which is the throne of God, and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and this is, this is very much dealing with the imagery from Ezekiel 47. And then you see on both sides, trees on both sides. And the trees are the tree of life. It's apocalyptic literature. It's not, it's not meant to be interpreted literally. If you're reading it literally, like you might read an Ikea manual, you are reading it incorrectly. There's a lot of incorrect reading of Revelation out there. Okay, so before we talk about the woman at the well and then hasten on to the Q&A, any questions? brief observations 
So, Andy, you alluded to this idea that there was one tree, but there were on both sides, but then you didn't expand on that. There's nothing to expand on <laughs> other than it's an Ezekiel 47 reference. But we will spend a whole hour talking about the tree of life. But but the idea that there can be plural as one, right? You So you have a forest that is called the tree of life. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't think we should even go there. I don't think we should think of it like that. I think you should just accept that Revelation is saying something by using the language in Ezekiel 47. So it's grafting in the image. And when we read what Revelation is saying, we shouldn't try to figure out how something singular can be something plural. I'm, I'm being a little, I'm, I'm pushing you here a little bit. I'm being a little testy. Um, I, I like to do that with these questions because it's so difficult for everyone, myself included, to, to take off, get out of the modern cognitive space when we come to the Bible and read, read the literature according to how it's asking to be read. Let's go on to John 4. Oh, Andy, can I ask one more thing? Sorry, this is Emily. Hey, Emily, yeah. Um, just because that phrase, the looking like crystal, follows right after the water of life as a descriptor, do you have anything to say about the crystal? It's fascinating to me. That's such a good question. I haven't looked into that specifically, but when I bump into something, a good question like that, I open up Step Bible and do a little quick back of the napkin research. So there's the word crystal, crystallos, rock crystal. Some people translate it as ice. It's only used two times in the Bible, in the New Testament, because it's Greek. Uh, and both are in Revelation. So before the throne, there was, a, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Uh, I would say that that is a reference to the rakia which is the thing back in Genesis one, it's the thing when God separates the water vertically, uh, the understanding is that, uh, that the firmament or the expanse is how it's often treated, which I just, that's one of my, one of my pet peeves about, uh, it's one of the top 10 mistranslated words to call that the expanse. It that's too easily co-opted by us. When we think of, what we think of when when we imagine the atmosphere in space it's just this vast expanse and up there somewhere is the water uh, but that word is uh hard it's it's something hard and in other places in the bible and i'm i'm really digging digging way back but uh, i think ezekiel uses that word rakia and describes it and it's blue and hard at heart, I think he even uses, it's like ice crystal and it's sprawling out before the throne of God. So if I just had to do a quick, what, what could be going on here? That's what I would go look into further, which I'm tempted to do right now in front of everyone, but I'm not going to for the sake of time. Don't do it. Don't do it. No, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. I'll keep, I'll keep looking as well. There are a couple moments in the Old Testament when a prophet sees upwards into the throne and or like sees God's legs and 
they're blue. Uh, and I think what, what we're supposed to understand is you're seeing upward into the, into the third heaven, God's space, through the transparent barrier of the rakia into the throne room of God. And I, I, if I had to guess, I'd say that's Revelation is borrowing some stuff there. But I just threw a couple things out that I haven't justified or explained. So just stick a pin in that. Or go back to Genesis 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth, and read all the references to the Shamayim, the heavens. You, you get three, three things, basically. The, where the birds are, where the stars are, and God's, God's space. Let's go to John 4. So here we are, with Jesus and the woman of Samaria at the well. Let's, I'm just going to read this so it's fresh in all our minds. There's, there's such wonderful things here. So this is, this is the last bit of um, verses that we're going to talk about in our discussion of the river of life. So as I read it, uh, try to overlay everything we've just talked about and, and see if it rings any, any river of life, any Genesis 2 bells. Just Jesus and his apostles passed through Samaria. Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. She, Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when, you, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking people who will worship him. Uh, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, that's a, that's a long bit to read here at the end of, the, end of our course. Um, and there's, there's just so much to talk about in this conversation with the woman at the well. We're, we're, we're just going to scratch the surface. Um, but one of the things that's going on is uh, this is, in a sense, a marriage proposal. Or it's tapping into the pattern, the Old Testament pattern of husbands meeting their wives at a well. And I'll, I'll send out a blog about that 
from the Bible project, which is very illuminating. Um, so that that's one of the things that's going on here. Another thing that's going on is it's tapping into this trajectory of the river of life. So in verse 13, Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, talking about the water in the well, will become thirsty. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sit with that for a second. Given everything we've just talked about, what is that, what's that reminding you of? The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It doesn't just mean if you become a Christian, you get to go to heaven. I get it. It's talking about salvation, but it's talking about it in a certain way. And it's picking up this Old Testament language of a spring of water welling up. So we're zapped back to Genesis 2, which begins in a dry, dusty desert. And water wells up. And that water gathers into a river. And that river flows out of the garden. And it's intended to um, cause all the nations to flourish. Because that water of life is the life of God. That's the thing that it connects to or means or references. Uh, so you have the, uh, this is a, a spring from the deep water below the earth, the abyss that has now been conquered and because of God's power transformed into life. And this also, this should also be r- reminding you of um, Ezekiel 47. So a spring is coming from the mouth of the temple, uh, from the throne of God. We, we haven't gotten into this, but uh, let me just take something from another biblical theological trajectory or theme and plop it in here. Uh, as if you, if you track the, the story of the temple, uh, the temple both gets bigger and smaller. So it starts in the Old Testament as a tent and then it becomes a room. And then by the end of Revelation, it's the size of a continent because it's meant to uh, mean the whole earth. But it also gets smaller in the sense that it starts as a, you know, a building and then it becomes Jesus and then it becomes us. So Jesus, he takes on, he steps into, into the trajectory of the temple when he, uh, in John 2, says, destroy this temple, talking about the temple made of stones. And I will raise it up in, in three days. And everyone realizes, oh, uh, actually, he's talking about the temple of his body later on. Uh, so Jesus is saying, uh, out of, if he is the temple, he is the switching back into the river of life trajectory. He is the source of, of God's life, which will flow out into the world. And as the New Testament rolls on, the, the writers of the epistles put you in that place as well that you will be the source of the river of life as it flows out into the world. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. So everyone who believes in him will have flowing out of them the kind of life that was flowing out of Eden or that was intended to flow out of Eden. So then he, he brings all of us into this, um, this calling that Adam and Eve had to spread the peace and flourishing of the garden uh, so, and it and renews the calling, so that mm-hmm. anywhere we are is to become like like an Eden. Our families, our lives, our workplaces, our churches, our communities—that the 
the water welling up inside of each of us flows out and then moves out in concentric circles in our place and our time and has the same effect that the the river of life was supposed to have that everywhere the water goes everything will live so that's just a a quick here at the end of our time together um, kind of grafting in jesus's conversation with the woman at the well onto this river of life trajectory so let me stop there and let's we've got another 15 minutes or so for discussion what are you thinking what do you want to share with us I haven't been reading the chat, Philip, but if, if there's anything in the chat that is worth um, bringing back, now's the time. Yeah, um, yeah. Lori just was um, mentioning that um, Psalm 1, we are, we are trees drinking from that river. And of course, you brought Psalm 1 in earlier. There was another comment about that. Um, I was, I was uh, the other day, I was, I've been teaching the Beatitudes recently. And um, a key passage for Jesus when he's teaching the Beatitudes is clearly Isaiah 6. Isaiah 61 for all you Americans. It's Isaiah over here. Um, and he speaks about um, people becoming oaks of righteousness. Um, and it's very similar to the, um, to the, the Psalm one image as well, mm. but maybe more on that on tree, tree images when mm. we get mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Bring, bring that up later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if when you're in that territory, you're within striking distance of of the tree of life, an oak of righteousness, definitely. Yeah. What else are you thinking? What's going on through your through your heads? Did all this feel kind of familiar, humdrum, um, enlightening, interesting, challenging? What? I was wondering if there was any adverse. Um images of the river of life and um thinking about rivers of blood uh, i'm not, not talking about enoch powell but there is a an image in one of the psalms of a river he turned the river into a river of blood mm-hmm. um, yeah and there is the the exodus plague the night yeah. turned to blood mm-hmm yeah, yeah. There's, there's some some prophecy where the image of a river of blood up to the horse's mane or something like that is is going on. Uh, yeah, the water water is also a symbol of death. Remember, yeah, there is the specific trajectory of the river of life, and it's it's usually identified by various markers, you know, flowing from Eden or the or the temple or the throne of God. The tree of life is there. Um, where where it goes it has certain effects wherever it goes everything lives there but yeah they there's often it it gets confusing you have to sort out is this is water good here or bad here throughout the bible because it's bad plenty of times the flood uh, the crossing of the red sea the israelites cross on dry land but the the tahome closes on pharaoh and his army I'm also wondering if if the word Sheol has any uh, images of water in its etymology. Yeah, I don't know about the etymology, Mark, but it's Sheol or the the underworld or the pit. It's sometimes called in 
uh, in the Psalms is wet. The grave is wet. Uh, and, and if you've been paying attention to the picture we're, we're painting of the Hebrew imagination, you'll understand why. Uh, physically, when you dig down, you sometimes find water there. And then cosmologically, in terms of how they conceived of the cosmos, we had, remember, we had waters above and waters below, and the dry land was founded on top of the waters. And so that when you go, if you go down enough, which is where we put dead people, uh, you hit water. And then, so that physical reality, uh, the psalmists often map, they, they're dealing with that physical reality and Job, and they, they kind of pull it in. And in one sentence, they're talking about the grave. In another sentence, they're talking about drowning. So it's, it seems odd to us, but it would have been commonplace to them because of the way they, the, the associations they had with downness and death. And, and it was a wet place. Yeah. Go through um, Psalm 18 and Psalm 69 with that in mind. And You'll find some interesting things. Uh, Lori and then Emily will we'll pick up baptism and the Eucharist. Um, you don't have to answer this, but I uh, I loved the uh, the Samaritan woman passage that you said. But I've often wondered why he says, you know, where are your husbands? Or, you know, you, it almost seems so rude and abrupt, you know, and I've heard a million you know, discussions on that. I know you said it's a marriage proposal and you don't have to even talk about it. It probably doesn't have to do with water, but you know how it just seems like we're talking about this and uh, go get your husband. And I'm like, why, why are you saying that? So mm. you have anything to say about that or is that out of? Yeah, no, that's, it is about water. It's about water in that there is a um, the Bible project calls them design patterns. These repeated motifs in the Bible uh, of this design pattern is um, marriage at a well or, or finding your spouse at a well. And it consists of certain steps. And I'll, I'll just read the steps quickly. Uh, and then listen for how many you find in the story of the Samaritan woman. So the first step is a journey. Someone goes on a journey to, the, to a foreign country. And think about this, Jesus and the woman at the well, but also think about Moses and Zipporah who he, he meets his spouse at a well. Think about um, Isaac meets his spouse at a well. Ooh. Jacob meets his spouse at a well, or someone meets her on, on his behalf. So this is a, it's a, it's a trajectory that the New Testament writers are picking up. And then there's a couple interesting tweaks. So the first step is a journey, journey to a foreign country. There's a woman at the well. Second step, third step, there's drawing of water. And, and giving it to someone else or talking about drawing water. There is uh, the woman hurries home to bring news to others, news of the visitor. So we see that in Jesus and the, the woman at the well. There's hospitality. The visitor stays with the woman's family. And there's mention of a meal. That's part of this, this pattern. Remember when, I think I stopped reading before this bit, but when the woman runs off to tell her whole town about that she found the Christ. And then the disciples come and they are, they have this conversation about food. Uh, and he says, I have, I, I have things to eat that you don't know nothing about. Cause he's talking about doing the will of his father. And then there's a marriage. Two parties are joined as one. 
which in the story in John 4 refers to belief instead of actual marriage. Uh, So it's a bit of a tangent to the Sea of Chaos and the River of Life, but it's really interesting. And it's a great example of how the Bible references itself. And um, it's it's kind of a, a, a peek behind the curtain of especially how the New Testament writers are thinking through the Old Testament and then adding their layers of meaning on top of it. Is is Jesus trying to help her think about that? Or is he really worried? I've always heard it like she has to get rid of her sin because she has all these husbands. You know, is it like, is he wanting her to think of the husband and that? that scripture is that what you're saying i think in terms of the narrative it's a moment where she realizes she's dealing with a prophet because they've never met and yet he knows things about her and then when she goes home to tell everyone in her village about who she found her report is he told me everything i ever did so there's that's that works narratively But in terms of the design pattern of a woman at a well, it's no surprise that marriage comes up. That's the, that's the context there of this meeting. Emily, you wanted to talk about the, about baptism. Yes, I guess. I don't know. I, this is just such a new way to think about water that I was first thinking about um, Jesus being baptized in the Jordan, literally dipped into and enlivening, refreshing that water that then other people are dipped into in his wake. Um, and, and then the miracle, his first miracle, the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine saying, okay, you can see what you can think. That's another like layering idea, like Eden and garden. I'm now layering water and wine meanings. Mm-hmm. And then how that flows into the Eucharist and the last supper, the here's my blood. Now we're layering blood onto wine, onto water meanings. And I've just never, I've never great? thought of all this in one. I've never thought of it this way before. So my mind's just kind of exploding. <laughs> I, I think you're, you're tracking. All, all of that is definitely things, the authors of the Bible, they're threads that they mean to tie together. Okay. And there's okay. A, you, you hit a few of the important passages. There's a couple other passages that take these, these um, threads and just like twist them together so that they overlap and intertwine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Jesus turning the water into wine. So we've got two sets of threads here the sea of chaos and the river of life and wine and blood uh and they they kind of cross in and out and then they all meet uh on the cross really uh let me see if i can trace some of those so the 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 baptism moment jesus in the baptism uh in in the river jordan he's flooded he goes into the metaphorically sea of chaos and then emerges in, in, in new life and the, the the response he gives to john for why this is all happening is uh this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness mm-hmm. and i think i think that is it, it means it it's a statement with depth of meaning but part of the depth is it's interacting with this water stuff yeah um, so jesus emerges from 
the sea, almost like, I don't think this is too much of a stretch, but almost like the dry land or the cosmic mountain, um, the place which will be uh, the sea, the, God's throne. So that's part of it. That's one thing going on. And he's actually baptized again. Is that ringing any bells for anybody? What's Jesus's second baptism? It's referenced specifically. Is it the washing of his feet? Or... No, but that, well, that's not what I'm thinking of. It's the specifically anointing, referenced. The anointing. This Baptism is my... by fire, I think. It's his death, isn't Crucifix. it? Crucifixion. Crucifixion, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, the crucifixion. Yeah, he, uh, James and John are walking along, and they're, they're arguing about, hey, can we, uh, can we be at your left and your right? Uh, can we have the best seats in the house? And he says two things to them. Um, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to undergo? And he's talking of his death, but both of them are references to his death. Think about him, uh, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He, 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 the language he uses to ask the father to get out of this whole thing is may this cup pass from me, which has its own whole trajectory in the old Testament. Uh, but he says, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is baptized on the cross. He again descends into the sea of chaos and death and then emerges three days later in new life. And the last little thing I want to point out uh, on this, this exciting but strange confusion of, and twisting of threads is this little detail when the, after he dies, the centurion s- stabs his spear into his side and not only blood comes out, but water comes out. And I, I think, I, d- I don't think we're limited to that only being a, a, some kind of like biological, anatomical um, eyewitness description thing. I think I've heard explanations where that happens. Maybe it's the water, the fluid around the lungs and the heart. Um, but it being liter- literally true or not is an important but separate question as to the literary truth, the, the literary meaning that Jesus's death out of his body flow, both the blood of life, which we are to drink symbolized in the Eucharist and the water of life. So I think, I think you're tracking it's, I think it's all there and you're, you're tracking with it, Emily. Okay, great. Well, thanks for riffing with me. That's so fun. Andy, I just wanted to do a plug here for, um, there is a small little book called Baptism, A Guide to Life from Death by Peter Lightheart, um, an excerpt of which I'm going to put in the chat. Um, and it gets at so many of these things. And I just want to share this paragraph. Uh, context is he's talking about how the sea is, sea of chaos, scary place. Jesus lives in a different water world. He doesn't shrink from the sea. He chooses Galilean fishermen, not Galilean shepherds. As Yahweh incarnate, Jesus strides the sea. So does Peter. He doesn't get far, but for a few moments, he shares Jesus's mastery of the deep. What will happen when his faith grows? Acts tells us the rest of the story. Paul can't stay off boats and tales of shipwrecks, um, tales of shipwrecks spice up his late night yarns. Israel's rivers gave them passage to other lands, but the sea is the church's whale road to the four ends of the earth. Baptism is the sign of the church's extended mission to the roiling Gentile sea. Um, 
and there's just a whole bunch of delightful connections like that made in made in this little article, which is a chapter. It's excerpted from a chapter in the book, but he gets at the blood and water thing in there, and he gets at um, yeah, just so many other things. It's mm. wonderful, imaginative um, portrait of so many of these things you're talking about. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's why Philip's the curator. We've passed the hour and a half mark. Is, is do you have any other questions burning inside you that we can come to? Andy, I was just going to say that um, sort of the difference between a sea and a river is that a river has a source, hmm. right? It begins from something. We sort of think of a sea or or whatever a large body of water is almost as though it, it has just existed. It's just kind of there. Mm. But a river begins someplace. And so the the um, not symbolism <laughs> of you where this comes from, right? Whether it's from Eden or from the throne or from the temple, there is huge difference in that it is, there is a source from its beginning and from where it will go. Yeah, and, and that is the point of the image of the river of life. This is a, it's a ray from the source, a ray of life, which is being talked about as a river. But it isn't about a river. We didn't get into, you know, is this literal? Should we be looking for a literal river with trees on either side? Um, but it is about a river, but it isn't about a river. It's about the life of God and how people can become um, carriers of it and transmitters of it. And a whole thing we didn't even talk about was how much of the movement of the spirit is used, uh, employs water language. So the spirit is poured out on, on God's people. Uh, so it's not about a river. It was I'm sorry, one more thing and then I'll stop. Um, it reminds me of the word flow, which is also really, really important. And I've heard a lot of people speak to when they were in the flow and the, the feeling as though, um, I, don't, I don't even know that I can articulate it, but, but feeling like you were absolutely in the presence, in the moment, and you were in the flow. And similarly, sort of the spirit having a feeling of a flow, and therefore, there comes the river, there comes the flow, there comes the current, etc. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, that word flow is, it's modern parlance. It's not used in that way, to mean like being in the zone. But it it is an interesting, uh, interesting you can play with that word in interesting ways when it comes to the Bible, because people who are empowered by the spirit do experience this sometimes supernatural energizing, mm-hmm. even in, in artistic ways. Uh, that's the, the context that I've most heard that word flow used. Lori asked in the chat, does the spirit hovering over the water mean anything more? Probably Lori. Yeah. Um, just going back to this idea that, that it's like the whole, the whole Bible gets compressed into those first 
two or three chapters so that the, the, the barest, um, the barest words just over the course of the Bible expand out and out and out and expand. Um, so the spirit hovering over the water, yes, is significant. I'll it's try to find something from the Bible project on that and send it out. Bill, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was just thinking that um, it's always, it's, the story is always getting bigger. The streams are always expanding. So somebody's thirst is not just quenched, but then from then on, they're out to their mouths. There are flows, rivers. So it it's always seems to be getting more, I guess it's the idea that the spirit of God is always doing more than we can ask or think i suppose mm. yeah the uh the the age of virology which we're all now living in uh has given us a great word and the word is vector so if you if you get covid and sneeze on 20 other people you you have vectored your covid to them um but we are supposed to be vectors for the life of god that's one of the beautiful things like the movement that's inherent in this uh, image of the river of life that it it doesn't flow and then just stop it flows and then hits something and keeps on flowing and spreading and splitting and going out I, again we're back in that genesis 2 geography digression can i say i know we're going over time but that was something i was thinking about as well because i know that in a lot of ancient cultures and i think a lot of eastern cultures the idea of the universe is very much a cycle that endlessly repeats and one of the, I, I find more hopeful things about the Christian story, and to some extent, this is just a Western mindset, is that there's a direction to it. And that there is progress, not necessarily in the world, but sometimes, but mostly like spiritually speaking, we're going towards something, we're not just endlessly repeating. Mm-hmm. History has a destination. Yeah, which, which you pick up in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But it's not cyclical, like say cultures of the east or static like the uh, mediterranean cultures of the ancient world and the the greco-roman thought was this is this world is an emanation of the forms and it is mostly static yeah and then in in strides hebrew judeo-hebrew christian thought and it becomes a a ray again it has a starting place god and, and is going to a destination